We're in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit has just been poured out upon the church of Pentecost. 3,000 people were baptized after Peter's sermon, and now the church has 3,120 people in it. In the aftermath of that, this is what the Bible says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And this, we study this concept of awe. Awe is the concept of being gloriously overwhelmed by the greatness, goodness, and mercy of the triune God, specifically and eventually seen in the greatness of the cross of Christ. It's to be overwhelmed with the glorious goodness and mercy that's found in the living God. And last week we talked about an environment of awe, what happens when awe comes upon a group of people. And the Bible says that they were together and they had all things in common. They were together. In other words, they had a unity of purpose under the gospel and that they sold their possessions and they gave to those who had true need. In other words, the, the enthralment of things lost the power in their lives. When awe comes upon you, the, the thraldom of material things loses its power. Thirdly, it says that they went from home to home worshiping God with glad and sincere or generous hearts. They were just glad in their forgiveness of sins. They were glad in knowing Christ. Sincerity of heart means they had a fixed purpose. And the last thing we mentioned last week is that they enjoyed favor with all kinds of people. People outside of the church who saw what was going on stepped back and they said, you know, I like what I see. I like the self-effacing spirit. I like the fact they're giving to people. I like the fact that they're new in the way they talk to each other. I like the fact that they live with integrity. I like what I see. And so as you step away from that, I, I come to this passage now, and the question is, what feeds or nourishes the life of awe, being gloriously overwhelmed? And the Bible says that they were devoted to four things, which means to be totally given to four things, to the apostles' doctrine or teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And we're going to cover those issues in the next few weeks. Today and next week, the apostles' doctrine or, or the teaching of the Bible. They gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, which, which pointed to Christ and hope and joy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, a well-known passage, the apostle Paul, writing his last letter, says to Timothy. Now, Timothy, in verse 13, while evil people... And imposters will go from bad to worse. So Timothy, those who walk away from the reality of God and those who turn their back on the revelation of Christ, and they go from bad to worse. Their lives will slowly unravel. He says, but as for you, you continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And Timothy, you realize that these things can make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. And then the passage this well-known all scripture, Timothy, is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped or competent, able to do every good work. 
Paul says, Timothy, realize that, that the word of God is given, the apostolic writings are given, so that you may be a man who is instructed and corrected and reproved and guided in the way of righteousness on the path of righteousness. Understand this, Timothy, that, that the man of God is thoroughly equipped, able to do every good work. So, so the purpose of God's word is to show us the beauty of Christ and to instruct us in the way of the Lord. John Calvin says in his Institutes, he says, spiritual insight consists chiefly of three things. Number one, to know God. Number two, to know his fatherly favor shown toward us in the cross of Christ. And number three, to know how to frame our lives around the rule of his law. So to know him, to know his fatherly goodness in the cross, and then to frame our lives around his fatherly goodness and the cross. And he says this. He, earlier he said, it's better to limp along this path than to run with all dexterity outside of it. It's better to limp along this path as if you've been, you know, hobbled in an accident than to run like bolt outside of it going nowhere. To know God, to know the glory of the Christ, and then to frame our lives according to his word. Augustine said this. Augustine died in 430, a long time ago, in the Confessions. He says, turn to us, O God, and show us your countenance, and, and we shall be whole. W-H-O-L-E. Whole. Complete. For, for unless the soul of man turns itself toward you, it is eventually filled with sorrows. Even when fixed upon beautiful things which you have made. And, and, and this beauty does not last. Beauty grows and then it shows perfection, but it grows old and it withers. And these things, there is no place of true rest, but your word calls us to return to you. And there is a place of undisturbed rest where love dwells. He says, you know, Lord, even the beauty around us slowly fades, but you're unchanging. And so we run to you, we turn to you, we come to you. We return. We have the grace of Christ recouped or restored in our lives as we run to you. We have recreation. We're recreated as we behold the image of Christ. There is wholeness in Christ. I was praying through Psalm 51 just this past week, and I was struck with this. I've never seen this before. Of course, Psalm 51 is written by King David after he's been involved in horrendous misbehavior, horrendous sin. He took a woman who wasn't his wife. He lusted after her, brought her into his house. They had an immoral relationship. She becomes pregnant. Her name is Bathsheba. David calls her husband in from the field where David should have been, where he's fighting the enemy, and Uriah refuses to go into his wife and have enjoy marital intimacy because his, his men cannot go to their wives. And so David sends him back, and in order to cover up her pregnancy, he has her husband murdered in battle. So David covets lust, commits sexual sin, is involved in murder, and then he brings Bathsheba into his palace, saying to the world, I'm a magnanimous, gracious man. I'm taking this poor woman who is pregnant, whose husband just died, to be my wife and protect her. And he's miserable. 
And then one day a prophet comes in named Nathan and he says, uh, David basically tells a story. He says, David, you're the man. You sinned against God. You violated the things of God. And David says, I have. I'm a sinner. I blew it. And then Nathan says, but God forgives you. But there are going to be consequences. But David penned Psalm 51 in the aftermath of that. When the hand of God was heavy upon him. What I've never noticed, church, is that there is a note of pleading for the joy that has been forfeited. And the gladness that has been forfeited. Let me just read a few verses. Verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities, creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So in just a few verses, he says, Lord, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken because of my sin rejoice. And let me once again experience the joy of your salvation. So what he's saying is joy and happiness and delight and laughter and wholeness and harmony is my birthright as a child of God. But I have forfeited these things. Lord, let me see them again. Let me stand in awe of you. And as I give myself to the apostles' doctrine, may I see joy and purpose. I read this recently. I just thought, this is so good, man. This is so good. This is Augustine once again. Augustine says this. Think about this. He says, to be happy by his own power without superintendence belongs to God alone. Okay, think about it. To be happy by his own power without superintendence belongs to God only. In other words, I need someone in my life, i.e. the living God, to say, this is the path of joy, this is the path of wholeness, this is the path of harmony. If I try to be happy or joyful or have purpose, apart from the reality of all that God is for me in his triune glory, I'm going down the wrong path. That's what Augustine said. To, to be happy in and of himself without superintendence is reserved only for God alone. I need superintendence. I need someone to speak to me the word of truth. I need someone to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the way. This is the truth. It leads to life. His name is Jesus. I need this in my life. I need to be devoted, church, devoted, not committed, devoted to the apostles' teaching. There's a difference. Devoted means yes. This is it. Not, not, yes, I affirm it, and yes, I believe the Bible, or I, I, yes, I, I, yes, I've got this academic understanding. That yes, God did this, and yes, uh, devoted. Devoted because it corrects me, it changes me, it challenges me. I, I often sit back and, and I, I think about walking in, in this awe of the goodness and the forgiveness and the purpose of God for me in Christ. And, and, and I think about pursuing him. And I, sometimes the people I meet that are really zealous for the Lord and want to do the right thing are people that have, I call, they've done the perp walk. 
It's a modern day thing. The perp walk is you're arrested and you walk between two U.S. Marshals or two deputy sheriffs. You've been arrested and you go from point A to point B and they can take your picture or they can videotape you and they show it on the evening news. It's called the perp walk. And, and a lot of people have done the perp walk. All facades are up. Uh, there are people here who have done time in prison. And it's common knowledge. It's a matter of public record. It happened. And, and in their brokenness, though, they tested the, tasted the forgiveness of sin and the sweetness of Christ. That there are people here who were in small towns where everybody knows everybody's business. If you ever lived in a small town and they got pregnant out of wedlock, and thankfully they had the baby, but everybody knew they were pregnant out of wedlock and they did the perp walk. There are people worshiping here today who've had failed marriages and people know it. Or they feel like they failed as parents and people know it. I mean, the gig's up. And so you're at the bottom, failed businesses, whatever. You're at the bottom, you're broken, and you taste the sweetness of Christ and the forgiveness of sin and hope and purpose, even in the midst of your pain and your brokenness, and it makes you hunger and thirst for righteousness. The people that I struggle with, not personally, just along, are people that are raised in wonderful homes, and they may come to faith in an early early age, and they don't do anything that is really scandalous in high school or college, and they kind of slip by, and they get out of college, and they marry somebody that's a kind person, and they get a nice job, and they have a nice home, and they have kids that are fairly normal. They're not Mozart or Deshaun Watson, but they're pretty normal. And, 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 and everything's just okay, and, and they'll stand up and they'll quote the Apostles' Creed, but they've never done the perp walk. I want you to do the perp walk. And you do the perp walk when you're quiet and you get in touch with your heart. You may have been born in a covenant home and come to Christ in an early age and gone to Christian schools and never said a curse word and you've never drunk anything stronger than a Mountain Dew or a Red Bull or something like that. But listen to me. If you're quiet and you listen to your heart, you'll hear a zoo of lust and arrogance and a lack of love and an unforgiving spirit and you have to run to the cross. I do every day and say, God, forgive me. Restore me. I want you to do the perp walk frequently. So that way we can all say, I need thee every hour, every hour I need thee. And when that happens, you know what? You're devoted to the apostles' teaching. You cry, Holy Spirit, teach me. Friday, I was here walking the halls, and our school, Palmetto Christian Academy, was having a, a uh, hurricane drill. And down the hall was a lot of our high school students sitting there orderly, listening to the teacher's instruction on what to do if they gave the final drill statement and how to put, position your body. And it was done very, very well. I was impressed. And I stand there looking at them, and I said to one of the teachers, oh, we're having a fire drill today. And she very graciously said, no, no, Pastor Brown, it's a hurricane drill. If it were a fire drill, we'd be leaving the building, not sitting in it. <laughs> and I just thought, how can I come back to that? I mean, that, 
I just made a really stupid statement. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, well, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> but as I, and then I walked away, and I, th I thought, then I remembered as a child, being in elementary school in North Carolina. And in 1962, I was in the third grade. And in 1962, we had something called the Cuban Missile Crisis in October. And the Soviet Union wanted to put nuclear warheads in Cuba, and President Kennedy said no, and there was a standoff that we came perilously close to nuclear war, we know now. And Khrushchev backed down, and we removed our missiles from Turkey and Italy. And, but in the aftermath of that, if you're, if you're old enough to remember that, I remember sitting around the table talking about, should we build a bomb shelter as a family? And then if we build a bomb shelter, who do we let into the bomb shelter other than our family? And who do we turn away? And we decide not to build a bomb shelter. And then if you build a bomb shelter, do you stock it with lima beans or green beans or pinto beans or all that kind of stuff? And, and, I, and I remember, I remember during this nuclear war concern that we had nuclear war drills in my elementary school. And this is what we did. We had desks. And a sound would go out. And we would stoop down and sit underneath the desk to be protected from nuclear war. <laughs> exactly. I mean, so I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a physicist or a nuclear engineer, but I don't think that's going to save you in nuclear war. A plywood desk is not going to do you any good. But that's exactly the way a lot of people live. Life is a nuclear war. And they're sitting under a plywood desk of their own machinations. It doesn't work. See, the Christian faith is truth. And, and any other system has stepped away from that. Some are way out here. Some are pretty close, but they're still not there. It's the Christian faith. So when I get hold of that, I want to be devoted to the Scriptures. Let's think about some of the isms. I mean, the world religions have various degrees of truth in them because it's people reaching out to the God they're trying to define. They see a great creator God, they can't quite define him right, but they get some get fairly close, some are way out here. But I thought about some of the isms that, that we're convulsed with. I mean, if you're a secular uh, humanism, secularism, happy secularism, that life is just good and life is getting better and you can perfect your own being by just trying hard and you live in a life, a life of happiness and, uh, and purpose and, but you don't need any help. It's all up to you. You're a long way from the gospel. But I see people who are what we call nihilist, who believe there's, there's no hope, that life is, is, is sour, their, their, their patron saint is Eeyore, Remember Eeyore? I mean, you know, just, oh, well, everything's bad. I mean, but, but they see the rottenness of life. They see the hopelessness of life. I mean, those people are very close to the gospel, I think. Because before you can come to Jesus, you've got to be broken. And then when you're broken, you look up and you see the living Savior. They're very close. These are, so, but there's various degrees. When I talk to people that have no hope, I think, man, I've got good news for you. Jesus is hope. I talk to people who've got it all together. I don't have much to say to them. So, so to understand these things, to, to really get hold of these things, we, we have to do the perp walk continuously. I need you. Oh, I need you. I was thinking the other day that, that one thing maybe we should all do is go to the courthouse and change our middle name to foremost. Foremost. Because in 1 Timothy 1, the Apostle Paul says twice 
in two different verses, back to back, 15 and 16, he says, the gospel of Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost or chief. And new parent, new sinners. The gospel came to save me, the foremost of sinners. See, my middle name should be foremost. Name your dog, foremost, to remind yourself. Now, Paul's a pretty cool guy. Wrote 12, 13 books of the New Testament, three missionary journeys, established tons of churches, a man of courage. But he said, listen, I am the foremost of sinners. I need to see that. I need to realize that. So they devoted themselves. They gave themselves fully to the apostles' teaching. This devotion was of a certain type. It was a devotion that cried out to God for mercy. Let me explain. Our purpose statement as a church is equipping people to pursue Christ passionately to impact the culture. So, equipping to pursue passionately to impact the culture. When, when you're equipped and you pursue Christ passionately, that's the key word, passionately, you impact your culture. See, passionately there is there because you can study the Bible as literature and you can even learn Greek and Hebrew and you can learn some of the syntax and the rules of taking apart grammar and diagrams, and, and, and all that is good. All that is very good. But when you, when you come to the, the study of the Bible, you have to realize that unless the Holy Spirit of God takes the Word of God and makes application to your heart and opens your eyes to see the beauty of the text and the glory of Jesus, you won't get it. And, and so whenever we come to the Bible, we, we cry out, God, by your Holy Spirit, open my eyes to see these things. And for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says this to them, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Every spiritual blessing is ours. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless, he's adopted us as his children. We have, verse 6, redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. We have, verse 13, been sealed with the Holy Spirit. So you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. You've been chosen in Christ before the creation of the world. You've been adopted in him as his children. You have redemption through the blood of Christ shed upon the cross. And you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, that is really good stuff. But this is prayer. I pray that the God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Father of all glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of your calling. He said, wait, 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 wait a minute, Paul. We have every spiritual blessing. We are adopted. We are redeemed. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And you're praying that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. And here's, what, here's the teaching. Unless the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit comes into my life and opens my eyes and pushes me forward, I will not see it as I, as I should. And so, so I go to this hymn by a group called the Gettys. I just love the Gettys. that says, speak, O Lord, as we come to you, 
to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. Cause our faith to rise and our eyes to see your majestic love and your authority. So, so I say as we stand as people who are gloriously overwhelmed, the gloriously overwhelming worship and understanding of God is fed by the apostolic teaching, the Bible, under the power of the Holy Spirit. And our cries, we open the Bible, is come Holy Spirit. So let me very quickly just mention a few things. Why be devoted to the apostolic doctrine? I'm just going to make two points here. The first is this. I need to be devoted to the apostolic doctrine or the Bible if I want to live a life of love. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. So if I want to live a life of love, I need to commit myself to the teaching of the Bible and let the Holy Spirit work in my life. Because 1 Timothy 1.5 says, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a clear conscience and a sincere faith. A pure heart, the heart was the seat of the emotions and the will and the thinking. So you've got to have a, a pure heart that's dedicated to the Lord. You've got to have a, a clear conscience, which means you have an inner awareness of your need for Christ. And you've got to have a sincere faith which listens to and makes adjustments and applications as the scripture is spoken into your life. And as you do those things, as you have a pure heart and a clear conscience and a sincere faith, you live a life of love, which involves self-forgetfulness and Christ-centeredness. I want to live a life of love. I want the Word of God to bathe my soul. And the second reason I need to give myself to the apostles teaching the Scripture is because I want to fight the good fight of faith. Follow this. Fight the good fight of faith. First uh, Timothy 1 and verse 18 says this. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now listen to me. The prophecies were these godly men laid their hands on Timothy and prayed for him, and they spoke God's promises into his life. And these promises, I believe, many of them are recorded in the Bible as general promises to the church. They were saying, Timothy, God is gloriously good and he's faithful. And as you walk with him and as you submit to him and as you walk with him, he will use you. Timothy, you fight the good fight of faith as you take on the shield of faith and the breastplate of righteousness. And as you live a life that's devoted unto the Lord, God will bless you. Timothy, you, you live as a watchman on the wall as you guard yourself in the things of the Lord. Timothy, be careful. Timothy, if you do this, God will bless you. And see, Paul says, you remember those things, Timothy. And so I think these things are here. And so if I need to have the prophecies of God, the word of God spoken into my life. I need to fight the fight of faith. To sell this point, all I need to say to you is this. How did the Lord Jesus Christ, eternal God in the flesh, fight the devil? It is written. It is written. It is written. It is written. He is quoted the Bible. Boom, 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 boom. Now I thought about it. If I'm to walk through life as an honoring disciple of Jesus, I've got to fight it with 
the promises of God. That's what Paul says here. And I just thought of a couple of examples. I just kind of jotted them down, the worship God. For example, if you want to live a life of proper speech and relationship building. You just take a few of the promises of God and you, and you write them down and you think about them and you think about them and you ponder them and you, you, you bring them into your life. Uh, memorize them and just keep a little packet of just speech, relationship. For example, I said here that James 1, you're going into a family disputation, which happens. Or into a relational issue that is rocky. And you stop and you say, Lord, the Bible says in James chapter 1, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, Lord, as I go into this discussion with my wife, with my child, with my friend, with my coworker, whatever, may I be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry because, Lord, I know that my anger doesn't produce righteousness in my heart. Or you may be going into, maybe you're having a marriage disagreement and you quote Proverbs 10 11 in your mind, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. <laughs> so maybe your wife is correcting you. You say, well, before I speak, let me just say one thing. The mouth of righteous is a fountain of life. <laughs> I'm going to bless you with my response. No, you don't do that. You may think it, but you be, be careful when you say that stuff, okay? You may get a bookcase the side of your head or something, but I mean, seriously, but you, you think about that. Or I got another verse down here. It says, uh, Colossians 4, 6, let your speech... Always be with grace, season as it were with salt. God, give me language that is salty in a biblical way. Or Proverbs 16, 32. The man who controls his spirit is better than the mighty, and the man who controls his anger is better than the one who captures a city. If I control my anger under the power of the Holy Spirit... I am better than a man who captures a city in God's sight. Don't let anger rule in my relationships. Or Ephesians 4.29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Lord, I just want to benefit people. I just want to benefit people. So you, you think about those verses and you walk through them and you, you think them and, you, and, and all of a sudden, you know what, you're a peacemaker and you speak the truth, but you speak the truth in love, and you're not arrogant, you're not demeaning, you're it's just, it, God changes you. You fight the fight with the promises. Another example, very quickly, just, we all struggle with self-worth. I mean, you hear constantly, you're, you're not that good looking, you're not that talented, you're not that smart, and that's what your friends tell you. And then you, then you get out in the world, and the world just beats you down. You didn't get the residency you wanted. You didn't get that job promotion. You didn't get that. Your, your kids are not what you thought they were going to be. Look at this. Look at that. Look at this. And you're a failure. You know what? You just, you just beat down with that stuff. And what do you do? Do you run around and run Deepak Chopra? No. You run around with self-affirmation exercises. You get up in the morning and look in the mirror and says, I'm younger, I'm better looking, I'm stronger, and I'm more sensual than I've ever been. 
No. And what do you do? You fight it with a word. And you say, you know, Psalm 139 says this. I knit you together in my mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, Lord. It, it astounds me that you knitted me together in my mama's womb. You gave me the height and the eye coloration that you wanted to give me. You, knit, you, you made me, and I am made in the image of God, and I am worthy of respect and Christian love. And I, I am every other human being is the crowning work of your, your creation. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wow. Are you go to Romans 8 1. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or no condemnation. I am forgiven. I'm your man. I can walk in the fullness of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Or Jeremiah 9, God says, don't let the wise man boast of his wisdom. Don't let the mighty man boast of his might. Don't let the rich man boast of his riches. But let the one who boasts, boast in this, he understands and knows me. God, I'm going to boast in the fact that I know you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm not going to boast of my wisdom or my might or my riches. But I want to be glad in you today because you're unchanging and your purposes are fixed and I can be glad today. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. God, I'm a new creation. I'm a new creation in you. I'm yours. And lastly, I just threw down Matthew 7, 11, where Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you then, though you are evil parents, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who call upon him? And you just stop and say, you know, I can say this in my case, Lord, I have wonderful parents. In fact, in the Wonderful Parent Award, my parents would have a photo finish with any other parents I've ever met. Gracious and caring and loving. Thank you. But you say here, Jesus, that even my parents, and they're pretty cool people, don't know how to give good gifts anywhere close to Abba Father knows how to give good gifts. And so, Lord, I'm yours today. You're my Abba Father by the cross of Jesus. And Abba Father, you are going to give me today good gifts in such a fashion that I can honor you because you love me. Not because I deserve it, but because you love me. I don't get it, but you do. Let me tell you something. That does a whole lot more good to my heart than any self-affirmation literature I've ever waded into. And so you fight the devil with the promises of the Bible. And so that's why the early church was devoted to the apostolic teaching. That's what I want for us. I want us to be devoted to the Bible and to the ramifications of the Bible. I want us to help each other walk on that path and cheer each other on and weep and laugh with each other and, and say, you know, we know the way Jesus established it. We know the truth because it's Jesus and we know the life because it's in Christ. We've got it. We get it. We're going there. May God give us the grace to live that way. Well, let's pray.
Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your faithful, faithful, faithful goodness to us this week and this past year and the past 42 years and the faithful, faithful, faithful goodness that will crown our lives in the coming week and the coming year and the next 42 years. And we thank you that you're unchanging. We thank you that as, as we celebrate your goodness to us, as many of us can look around and say with me that we have, we've had really good parents who've provided for us and cared for us and loved us. And then we step back and we say, but the love that our earthly parents have for us is nothing compared to the love of Abba Father for his own. And that, that, that's astounding. So as we get hold of that and as we glory in the Christ, may we be may we be absolutely thunderstruck with the glorious goodness of who Christ is. And may we live there and worship there and, and laugh there and be full of the energy of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Thank you very much.